Hello and welcome back to Catacomb Synod Basics. This is going to be our last installment on reading through Spanner's Pia Desideria, the second foundational text for understanding the kind of pietism that the Catacomb Synod embraces. Now, I understand again that the word pietism has a bad reputation, and we'll get into why that is and why it is deadly wrong today. See, it started as a slur, and it's a slur that we're going to go ahead and embrace the same way the Lutheran church wasn't originally called Lutheran. It was evangelish. It was evangelical. People about the good news. However, as time went on, the Roman Catholic Church gave the evangelicals the name Lutheran because they would say, oh yeah, we name every heresy after the heretic. And that just made more people want to become Lutherans. We as pietists do the same. Lutheran pietists, may I add. Now we are going through the last two sections in the Pia Desideria, sections 5 and 6, in the Proposals to Correct Conditions. Spanner gave us all the complaints in the world for how messed up the Lutheran Church was in his day. Then he says, let's dream bigger. Let's dream about a church that is fixed, that is truly reformed in her ways, that we might glorify God and bring people in. And not wanting to leave people out in the dust wondering, okay, how do we do that? He has six proposals for that. First being, let's get everybody loving the Bible. The second is reminding everybody about the spiritual priesthood, the universal priesthood of all believers, our responsibilities and privileges as Christians, even down to the newest of the new in the laity. We need to abolish this weird false distinction between priest and laity, this caste system that the pastorate had set up. So the pastors may understand that they are first among equals, not the king of a parish. The third recommendation was for the ministers and for Christians to remind each other about the third use of the law, particularly as it relates to Christian love for one another. We do good deeds because we are Christians. No, a Christian's place is not just waiting around to die now that he has been saved. God wants us to do things. He tells us what to do and what not to do, and we must obey him because he is our Savior. If we forget that, our churches are going to die miserable deaths, and we will deserve it. On the fourth proposal, he talks about religious controversies. There is a time and a place for polemics, but we don't attack the man in ad hominem fashion unless he is in an office pertinent to that. We attack bad doctrine, and we cannot forget that we must love people and want what is best for them, even when engaging in disputes, religious disputes, with people in other denominations or other religions entirely. Now we get to the fifth proposal, and I must admit I am going to skim a lot of this, because we're not there yet, 
quite as much for the catacomb synod. I am the only called and ordained minister of word and sacrament in the catacomb synod to my knowledge. However, Spanner says this has to start in the seminaries, saying, since ministers must bear the greatest burden in all these things which pertain to a reform of the church, and since their shortcomings do correspondingly great harm, it is of the utmost importance that the office of the ministry be occupied by men who, above all, are themselves true Christians, and then have the divine wisdom to guide others carefully on the way of the Lord. Now, in case you've missed a lot of the installments of Catacomb Synod Basics, here is our structure. I am the minister of word and sacrament. A lay leader and a deacon is going to be a minister of sacrament, particularly a deacon selected by his house church to consecrate the elements in communion, to conduct baptisms, and to run the liturgy. Now, somebody who is a minister of sacrament, but not word, still does interact with the word of God, because as we see with St. Stephen the martyr, they can pass along what is given to them. They can reword things. They can answer questions. They don't necessarily have the teaching office, but they can run a Bible study. They can run questions up to me, email me at very underscore Lutheran at tutanota.com if there is an issue. And if I need to be corrected in something, it, typically it goes up through the deacons, although anybody can email me to yell at me. A lot of what Spanner says about ministers applies to lay leaders and deacons in the catacomb synod. They should be earnest Christians who are seeking the Lord. They should be doing their best to do devotions, to do good works, to have an understanding of right doctrine, and to stay pure as much as possible to confess their sins, and to receive absolution just like any other Christian. However, Spainer wants to focus, as it was in his day, on seminary life. When he says, May God graciously grant that everything necessary thereunto may be diligently observed by the professors of theology, and that they may assist in seeing to it that the unchristian academic life which prevails among students of all faculties, and which has been sorrowfully lamented, not only by the sainted and earnest John Matthew Mayfart, but also by many other pious persons before and after him, may by vigorous measures be suppressed and reformed. There was a problem in Christian education. People's heads were being filled. Their hearts were being emptied. Now, this is a problem in Lutheranism today. Scholastic Lutheranism and its consequences have largely been a disaster for Lutherans everywhere. This isn't me slandering guys like Gerhard or Walther, but there has been a severe issue of people saying, if I know the right things and go through the correct motions, I will be saved. I am okay. And it is that same academic focus 
that has harmed the Lutheran Church, especially in the establishment of apostate bodies like the ELCA. Because after all, if we're going to be scholars, if we're going to be scholastic and academic in our approaches, then we should listen to those higher criticism guys, shouldn't we? We should listen to that Paul Tillich guy. He's a nice Lutheran boy, isn't he? We need to be smart about this and uh, let our denomination be subject to the marketplace of ideas. It's a great irony, as Spanner points out earlier in his book, that all the scholastic theologians in the Lutheran Church bemoaned and wailed and mourned just how painful it was to see people in the churches with a total lack of devotion and piety. And they were insulted if they brought it up. But for Spanner, he says something that I wish would be tattooed on every single seminarian and branded on the forehead of every theologian so they see it every time they look in the mirror. He says in no uncertain terms, study without piety is worthless. From the beginning of the sentence, besides students should unceasingly have it impressed upon them that holy life is not of less consequence than diligence and study. Indeed, that study without piety is worthless. I don't care what you know. I don't care how much you've read. You probably know more than me, and I have a Master's of Divinity. You are probably more skilled in the biblical languages. Perhaps you know Latin. Maybe you know German. I don't. But you have all this knowledge. But you're not devoted to God. If you're not devoted to God as a pastor, if you are not doing good works as a pastor, if you are not remembering that you too are a Christian, a sinner in need of salvation by God's grace, then you are worthless. If you are an observably worse person than me, I don't care what your IQ score is. And it doesn't matter how much you think you are fighting for the Lutheran Church. Spanner writes, uh, quoting Dr. Christopher Scheibler, If a young man devotes the whole time of his studies to controversial matters, one of two things must be the consequence. As daily experience proves, he will either be a bungling preacher, no matter how erudite he may be in polemics, or he must become a beginner, start the study of theology all over again, and study it in a different way. If all you care about is being on the right side of things and being on the winning team and slamming the heretics, you are of no worth to God. Oh, you'll be very valuable to the devil, but not so much for God. Spanner looks at the pastors in the ministerium in his day and says, Wow, we're messing up. And I can relate. Story time. Since we're talking about ministers and problems in the ministerium, I went to seminary. I came out of seminary having a lot of head knowledge, having a lot of know-how in terms of uh, slamming other denominations and answering questions. I was a veritable brain on a stick. I went to my first vicarage, my first call, and I had no idea how to properly run a liturgy. I had no idea how to do house calls. I had no idea how to truly build people up in counseling or run visitations to shut-ins. It took me a good large part of a year to get used to it. 
Trust me, vicarages are absolutely necessary as the practical part of it. But there is an issue with pastors today being so scholastic that they are not much in terms of actually building people up and helping them. Perhaps they give a lot of lip service to the love of Christ. Perhaps they're really good at telling people they need to love their neighbor as themselves. But you don't see many doers in the pastorate. Those who are doers, and I can think of five or six off the top of my head, they're the best of the bunch. Those guys, I'm not talking about them, and neither is Spainer. But in the seminaries, there's an environment where a whole lot of people are learning high-minded things and ceremonial ideas and traditions and doctrine and contesting with people that don't really focus on the devotions we need to have to our Lord, both in the inner man and in our external deeds. Spener is complaining about that. So it should be tattooed on all of us that study without piety is worthless. Otherwise, I mean, let's face it, a guy that is not actually preaching something that builds up the congregation might as well just spit sand onto the pulpit. Now, this does apply to our deacons and lay leaders in the Catacomb Synod. Maybe not as much, because we don't have a seminary yet. That's a problem. It's a problem we're trying to work on addressing. But our deacons and lay leaders are instructed that they must do their best to be earnest Christians. Christians that mean it, that have a relationship with God. Now, as for the sermons, they have been instructed that they can always come to me if my sermon isn't building up their congregation. They have the right to edit it and add something in that might be good for their specific congregation. They're passing along a message. If the message is lacking, I'm accountable to the Catacomb Synod for that to be fixed, and they can correct me for the next one. Especially because Spanner says this in section 6, where we get to the other half of pietism, the essence, the beating heart of it, he says, in addition to these exercises, which are intended to develop the Christian life of the students, it would also be useful if the teachers made provision for practice in those things with which the students will have to deal when they are in the ministry. For example, there should be practice at times in instructing the ignorant, in comforting the sick, and especially in preaching, where it should be pointed out to students that everything in their sermons should have edification as the goal, that is, building Christians up. I therefore add this as a sixth proposal, whereby the Christian church may be helped to a better condition, that sermons be so prepared by all that their purpose, faith and its fruits, may be achieved in the hearers to the greatest possible degree. A good example of a sermon that doesn't do that is when he talks about the young men's sermons that he was hearing in his day. Often many foreign languages are quoted, although probably not one person in the church understands a word of them. Many preachers are more concerned to have the introduction shape up well and the transitions be effective, to have an outline that is artful and yet sufficiently concealed and to have all the parts handled precisely according to the rules of oratory and suitably embellished, then they are concerned that the materials be chosen and by God's grace be developed in such a way that the hearers may profit from the sermon in life 
and in death. Here at the Very Lutheran Project, I aim for every sermon to be oriented to building Christians up, inspiring faith and or the fruits of faith, that is, love for God and love for one's neighbor. As I said before, if I ever mess that up, people can email me and say, hey, this is not benefiting my house church. This is not benefiting my congregation. Here's how we're trying to fix that one. And here's what we need you to do next time. I am accountable to them. Because otherwise, if I am not preaching things that build people up, the entirety of the very Lutheran project and the catacomb synod is probably going to fall apart because it does not glorify God. The Bible study materials we give for Sunday school are just the facts, ma'am, so that deacons can tailor it to their people. To the lowest common denominator, those who are newest in the faith or maybe don't understand quite as well as the smarter or more learned in the congregation, but also they can offer something of a challenge to those who are more learned in the faith. Something for everybody in the Bible studies, in the Sunday school. The goal is to build people up. And that brings me to the most important paragraph in the Pia Desideria. From what viewpoint is Spainer coming at in this entire book? Why is all of this so stinking important? Well, if you ask how I'm going to word it, I'd tell you that the Judaizing heresy never left the church. It's always been a massive problem. There are at least 300 million Christians today who think they are holy because they fast twice a week, because their priest or their bishop told them to. They go through the motions. They go through empty ritual. Their heart is not transformed. But Christ wants our heart. So Spanner writes, and again, this is the most important paragraph in the entire book. This is why our pastors have to do things for edifying people. One should therefore emphasize that the divine means of word and sacrament are concerned with the inner man. Hence it is not enough that we hear the word with our outward ear, but we must let it penetrate our heart, so that we may hear the Holy Spirit speak there, that is with vibrant emotion and comfort feel the sealing of the Spirit and the power of the word. Nor is it enough to be baptized, but the inner man, where we have put on Christ in baptism, must also keep Christ on and bear witness to him in our outward life. Nor is it enough to have received the Lord's Supper externally, but the inner man must truly be fed with that blessed food. Nor is it enough to pray outwardly with our mouth, but true prayer and the best prayer occurs in the inner man, and it either breaks forth in words or remains in the soul, yet God will find and hit upon it. Nor again is it enough to worship God in an external temple, but the inner man worships God best in his own temple, whether or not he is in an external temple at the time, so one could go on. The first half of biblical pietism, the masculine half of pietism, is to emphasize the third use of the law and the individual believer taking an active role in their sanctification. God tells us to do things. He tells us to do things because that makes us better people. We have to do it. 
the second half of pietism and the only one that gets airplay whenever somebody discusses pietism is the transformation of the inner man. Where is your heart? Are you responding to God's word? Are you really listening? And are your emotions helping you along the way? One of the reasons pietism gets a bad reputation among Christians today is because that sounds a little bit like what the Lutheran reformers referred to as enthusiasm. Enthusiasm, of course, being the hyper-emotional Pentecostal viewpoint where emotions and experience lord themselves over the scriptures. The Bible plays second fiddle to the still small voice that the mystic hears upon the mountain, or the Bible plays third or fourth fiddle to how many seizures a man has during the Toronto blessing. Enthusiasm and pietism are tragically considered to be synonyms oftentimes in the church, because people are told, what does your heart say? How are you being affected by the passage? And people go, oh, he's putting personal emotions on the same pedestal as the scriptures. He's saying that he has to listen to some prophet in the church saying, God tells you to take a leap of faith, so you need to buy this house. That's not the case. But the churches have had an overreaction to enthusiasm such that we have fallen into the other extreme, rationalism. I have had Christians say to me that emotions are nothing more than hormonal brain squirts that we should ignore. On the extreme side of things, there is a kind of pseudo-Buddhism coming from this camp that tells you to stop feeling emotions. Emotions are dangerous. They might even be ungodly. And every time you see emotions being expressed in the scripture, it's either a bad and sinful emotion, or it's not really an emotion, but some sort of orientation of the heart. When King David praises God and shows how happy he is to be with God in the Psalms, that's not him being happy, that's just him recognizing that something is morally good. Such is the rationalist position that seeks to extirpate real emotions. The pietist has to straddle the middle of these two extremes between enthusiasm, which puts emotions and experiences at the same level of scripture, the same way that the Roman Catholic Church puts tradition on the same level of scripture, and rationalism, in which mankind's reason lords itself over the scriptures or claims that his interpretations, his reason and logic are equal to scripture, the same way the Roman Catholic Church puts tradition on the level of scripture. I would say nothing is above or at the level of scripture when it comes to the source of doctrine and morals. The Bible is the sole rule, measure, and norm of faith. We follow scripture. And scripture tells me that God gave me emotions by which I process the experiences that I have and I hear the word of God and I process it understanding that God is saying something to me. Am I responding correctly? When a law and gospel sermon is preached, the enthusiast leaves the church because it's not the vibe that he wants. He goes back to his prayer closet. 
The rationalist hears the law and goes, yes, we are legally guilty of sin and therefore must change our minds and our ways in order to receive the forgiveness that God offers freely. Then he hears the gospel and says, yes, I am saved because of the blood of Christ shed for me. I process this information through my brain. And the Lutheran church, unfortunately for the past 200 years, has tried to walk this tightrope by saying, we have a magic, emotionally manipulative formula for inspiring faith in people. We preach the second use of the law only, the mirror that convicts us of our sins so that people feel bad. And then we preach the gospel, Christ having died for us sinners and risen again for our justification, so that people feel good again. And that way we can say, my job is done here. People are more faithful. They have more faithiness about them. The pietist understanding of the inner man and the sanctification that God works within us does not permit such a trite, emotionally manipulative way of going about homiletics. To the contrary, the individual Christian should be self-reflecting, should be asking themselves, what am I doing for God? What is God doing for me? Am I pleasing to God? Am I remembering the gospel? This is six days a week that we should be doing this, day in and day out, asking ourselves, have I loved my neighbor as God wants me to do? Am I a better person than I was a month ago? Have I been working on myself and helping others and loving people as God tells me to do? These are the things that are important for me. Hmm. Then we go on Sunday and we hear God's word proclaimed to us. God has a message to give from the pastor. And with the current circumstances of my walk with God, how do I feel hearing this sermon? Have you considered that maybe a pastor could preach against adultery in the law part of his sermon? The text deals with adultery and the pastor loves to slam the pornography addicts and attack the adulterers and talk about how bad fornication is. And most of the people in that congregation might be feeling bad as they are listening. But for the man that might be so blessed with the spiritual gift of celibacy, he's never been turned on in his entire life, how does he process the second use of the law being preached to him? Does he say, I have to make myself feel guilty? Does he profit when he says that? Because, oh man, Walther said, I'm supposed to be uh, penitent and contrite and in pain. Am I doing something wrong because I don't feel anything here? No. To the contrary, if he is a pietist, he listens to the second use of the law being proclaimed in this attack on adultery and says, you know, I worship a just God. And all around me, I see people being harmed by sexual sin. And it's encouraging to know that he hates that. And then maybe this celibate individual hears the gospel being proclaimed and he says, so God hates that, but he offers salvation to all, even me. I know I've sinned in other ways, but this God who sees these people's harm still loves them. Okay, I rejoice that I'm saved knowing I have my own sins to confess. And I'm going to rejoice that God is going to offer even these people salvation. 
And as the pastor goes into the third use of the law, the response part of the sermon, he goes, yes, I should be understanding as well. Of course, still standing for the truth that these things are sinful. I shouldn't stand in judgment against these people that don't have this spiritual gift, but let's work with that. That's a pietist response to a law and gospel sermon. A pietist evaluates where he is as he hears the sermon. He evaluates his individual relationship with God and he listens. He lets the word get right there nestled into his heart and goes, okay, where are we at? My emotional response to this is going to inform me where I'm at. And maybe it's going to tell me something bad. I might feel bad about how I feel. Let's talk. Let's develop. Let's walk with God. How can we summarize this? Pietism is, of course, a masculine Christianity that moves, it walks, it influences the world, it defends the faith, it does good works. But on the individual level, a pietist is someone who takes their relationship with God seriously. Not in the same way an enthusiast does, because enthusiasts take their emotions and their responses to things, their experiences, and they say, yes, this is God's message to me. The rationalist says, ah, yes, another Bible study conducted from the pulpit. Can't wait. The pietist, however, says, my emotions are me responding to God. There's a part of me, whether that's in my old Adam or in my new man, speaking back to God when I hear these words from Scripture. Now, I don't know what it is necessarily in me that's responding in this way, but I need to deal with that. I need to evaluate where God and I are in this walk together before I enter into a departure from this world. Let's talk about that. Let's deal with that. Let's keep walking with God. And if the Bible says I'm wrong and I feel like I'm right, then I know exactly what to correct. It is a kind of self-awareness, a self-examination that helps us in our sanctification as we go about the active part of the Christian life. And that makes us zealous to do good works and to continue on defending the faith. Now next week, having gone through Spanner's Pia Desideria, we are going to take a week off from the Catacomb Synod Basics. Uh, the deacons in the chat and I are going to spend some time in fellowship and prayer, so we won't have an upload for you here. Maybe I'll change my mind if somebody emails me and has a topic suggestion for the Catacomb Synod. If you do, email me, very underscore Lutheran at tutanota.com. But after that one-week break, we are going to start getting into the practical considerations of how to run a church service, how to run a Bible study, how to do visitations, all wonderful things for deacons and lay leaders everywhere to know and to practice. It is going to be good for everybody, I promise. But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.